But we're going to continue to follow the life of Jesus of Nazareth, whom Matthew is presenting to his people as the Messiah, the true king. You know, understand, you understand I think, that Messiah, which is Messiah, is Hebrew. Christos is Greek. They both mean anointed one, which is the way that God indicated the special office and often the anointing of the Spirit in the Old Testament. But Matthew is presenting Jesus as the true king. And when I say that we are following the life of Jesus, I don't mean that we are merely tracing his whereabouts on a map, although that could be uh, helpful. We're not just going from story to story in this gospel. Matthew is drawing us into the story. He's helping us to see Jesus in a particular way. In fact, we might even say we're shadowing Jesus in this gospel. I think we all know what shadowing is. Some of you have perhaps shadowed people. In other words, following their every move closely so that you can observe exactly what they're doing. You're like, yeah, I like this guy or this girl on campus. And I no, that's called stalking. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about shadowing. The time that I have mostly heard it used was in reference to surveillance, detectives shadow suspects to find out what they're up to. But shadowing has now become a helpful tool in many industries for coaching interns and trainees learning a profession or a trade or maybe moving to a different position in the company. To shadow professionals, you follow them. You watch how they do their job. You ask questions. And you learn in real time because you hope to someday experience what they're doing and, and to have the skill to do it well. So Matthew sets Jesus, our Emmanuel, the true king, before us, born from human lineage, with a storied past just like ours, through, uh, though he's, he's born of a virgin, not, not like us. And through his gospel, we shadow Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt, chapter 2, where the family flees to find shelter from certain death at the hand of Herod. And from Egypt, we see him go to Nazareth, where Jesus grows up in humble obscurity. And last week, we shadowed him into the Jordan River, Somewhere just north of the Dead Sea, where Jesus made a surprise appearance to submit himself to John the Baptizer's baptism of repentance. Jesus directed the unwilling John to baptize him, even though Jesus had no sins of his own, to confess just as he in execution on the cross, though he had no sins to pay for but Jesus entered those waters that day alongside all of the others who had come to repent of their sins and make their hearts ready to receive the king. He doesn't stand aloof on the shoreline, remember? Like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like the spiritually elite. He humbles himself and submits to the baptism with one goal in mind. He tells John, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. John, do this. Baptize me. This is the right thing to do. And as we shadow Jesus, he models for us what humble repentance looks like and how it leads us away from an elitist attitude with others 
so that our hearts are prepared to follow the Father and serve those whom Jesus came to serve and how it compels us to be eagerly eagerly submitted to doing the right thing in the eyes of the Father. And so uh, this is a significant moment in the life of Jesus. The entire Godhead rejoices in it. Remember? Jesus comes out of the water. Matthew says at the end of chapter 3 that the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him, anointing him so that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christos, the Messiah. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we learn as we shadow Jesus of Nazareth that God rejoices in us when we are simply saying every day of our lives, we're going to do the right thing, the righteous thing that God has called us to do. But now, Jesus moves on. Through no plan of his own, but by the leading of the Holy Spirit that has now anointed him and empowers him, And the first act of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life we find in the opening verses of Matthew 4. If you'll look there, Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After uh, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's putting it mildly, right? So by the time of the 40th day with no food, the body has probably entered into a state of starvation and it's making physiological changes survive. But the Spirit has led Jesus here to this place that he might face the greatest challenge of his life to date. We shadow Jesus the King into the wilderness because here he is tempted by the devil himself. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, we know this text. I think we're all familiar with the temptation of Jesus. We already anticipate watching and listening to Jesus and learning to face the temptation. You've probably been encouraged by this text throughout your life if you've been walking with For example, we notice that Jesus' temptation happens immediately after his baptism, after this wonderful affirmation by the Father, this is my beloved Son. And it reminds us that when we come to these points in our lives, when we are completely surrendered and we sense this closeness with God and we're walking with him and seeing victory in our lives, this is the very moment when God is going to test us. We're going to go through this kind of thing. That's one thing we learn. But I have to tell you that there is something much more going on here than simply lessons we can learn about temptation from the life of Jesus. Though at the least, we can follow his example. But something more than this is going on, and it has been going on ever since Matthew began to write the gospel. I've waited until this juncture, however, to bring it up. But if we do not understand this bigger reality that Matthew is presenting to us, we will struggle to understand the point of the temptation of Jesus in the first place. In going into 
wilderness. Jesus is actually retracing the history of his own people who had faced God's test of temptation in the wilderness themselves centuries earlier, and they failed. And now Jesus has arrived to relive for his people, and I would say for us this morning, this obedient life that God has us to live. And Matthew alone, out of all the gospel writers, makes this connection between Jesus and Israel explicit. We remember back in Matthew chapter 2, although I didn't spend much time on it then because I was sort of anticipating doing it now, actually. In Matthew's mind, the reason God told the Holy Family to flee to Egypt was to bring the Christ child out of Egypt. Just as he brought out the ancestors of Jesus from Egypt. So Matthew says, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And this reference by Matthew to the word of the Lord in Hosea 11 has always puzzled interpreters. In fact, there's a little book, some of you guys might have read it if you're studying for the ministry. It's the, the book of the, how, how, the Old Testament, uh, how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament in the New Testament. And the example they want all of the contributors to comment on is this example that we find here in Matthew chapter 2. How is Matthew saying that Hosea 11.1 1 filled? Because notice the translation. It does not capitalize some See that? You would expect if he's talking about the Son of God, capital S. Because the text that Matthew is quoting is not referring to the Son of God. It's referring to Israel. And also, it's no prophecy. In Hosea 11.1, 1, God himself says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You see, God is reviewing the story of his people for them, reflecting upon how he loved them and nurtured them like his own son. This is later in Hosea 11, God speaks of taking his son by the arms and teaching him how to walk. It's a very tender text. Although the point that God is making, if you read it, is that after all that God did, on Israel, they still turned away from God and they went after idols. Israel did not reciprocate God's love for them, for him. But God, the son, Emmanuel, king, does reciprocate God's love. That Jesus has come to Egypt fulfills what in Hosea 1 in connection between God's son Israel and God's holy son Jesus. God's son is reliving significant events in the life of Israel. But significant ways the path Israel once walked. But the difference is Jesus succeeds in obeying and loving God. abandoned the Father. Now, I said that following Jesus in Matthew's gospel is more than just tracing his steps on a map, but maps can be gratefully helpful in our understanding. So if we follow God's son, Israel, uh, they step into the wilderness, and Israel and his family, that's Jacob and his family, his name was turned to Israel, 
He, he left Hebron and went down to Egypt. And remember what happened. Uh, God had already sent Joseph ahead through this bizarre circumstance with his brothers trying to sell him into slavery to prepare the way for them to be in Egypt. And, uh, you know, we think of uh, Egypt as just a place of slavery, and it certainly became that, but it was also the place that God used to save his people from extinction. The covenants would have been totally gone had the people died. And so God used Israel or, or Egypt in a great way. Now, the map doesn't show this because uh, I'm just focusing on the land of Israel here, but uh, Israel is then led out of Egypt by God. They go through the waters of the Red Sea and are saved. Then they go into the wilderness where they are tested by God. And then God leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. But because Israel is tested and does not obey God, the golden calf, the rebellion of Korah and his family, they're complaining, their lack of trust, the idolatry, the immorality at Baal of Peor, the list goes on. Because of that, God causes them to wander for 40 years before bringing them back into the land. As you can see on the map, he brings them to the area right above the Dead Sea after 40 years. And they enter the land. Jericho is very close to that. Now, Jericho is the first city they go to. And they are told to attack. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he was also called out of Egypt when he was a child and settled in Nazareth. And when it came time to begin his public ministry, he went to the same location where Israel had crossed the Jordan to claim the promised land. After going through the water, Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness, just like Israel had gone through the water and into the wilderness. Very likely into the same region where Israel was camped before they went through the Jordan. Now, if you go to Israel, they're going to show you a site on the uh, western bank where they say this was where Jesus was tempted because Constantine's mom back in the fourth century went around trying to find all these places. She had said she had wood from the cross and all kinds of things. And so they built a big monastery up on a mountain uh, on the western bank. But it actually makes more sense that Jesus would have gone into the area known as Perea that you see there on the map. That's just a Greek word that means the, the country beyond or the country beyond the Jordan River. It's a very barren, rocky area where little grows, perfect for being alone with God in a place where there's not very much food. And where Israel stayed 40 years in their wilderness wandering, learning to trust God, Jesus stays 40 days fasting and showing us that we trust God. So what does all this mean? It means that Matthew is pointing us to Jesus to shadow him into the wilderness. In this narrative of Jesus' temptation, Jesus is going to face what his ancestors faced. He is going to face what you and I face. Now, and I want you to listen to me. This is really, really important. And it's, it's probably maybe something you haven't ever been told before uh, about the temptation. Jesus is not going into the wilderness to resist the devil's temptation simply to show us, look, this is how it's done. I mean, he's providing a pattern for us, an example at the least, but he's also doing something much more profound, much deeper than that. 
The Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness not to show us that we can overcome temptation like he does it, but to show us that Jesus himself can overcome temptation. Because when we know that Jesus can overcome any temptation, we know that Jesus' righteousness can never be compromised. Even in the midst of suffering, 40 days of hunger, then we know that he is the son of God who can save us and we know that we can depend upon his strength for our own battle of temptation as his righteousness is worked out in our lives. He suffered like we do and yet he never sinned. And because you and I understand that? We, we're, we can't. We can't do it in our own strength. Israel couldn't. God gave them the law. God gave them prophets. God gave them every opportunity for centuries and centuries, and they still kept going back to idolatry. That's you and me without the work of God in our hearts through the Spirit because of the faith we have in Jesus Christ. We derive our resistance to temptation through our union with Christ that is applied to the ministry of the Spirit. Jesus is showing us, I can do this. And in him, we can resist temptation also. So when Jesus says no to Satan's devilish temptations, he proves that he is the son of God and he prepares us to face the enemy's attack as we live out our lives in him. Because you and I are assaulted with these devilish temptations every day of our lives, we are. But as we see in this text, Jesus has already resisted every one of them. So what I want to do is look at this text by unpacking what are these devilish temptations that we're going to face and what did Jesus do about them so that we know that we can resist in him. Now, I'm only going to have time to touch on the first one in our remaining time this morning before we go to the table. So let me give you all three of them so you can see where we're going. We are tempted, first of all, to defy the will of God. Satan will tell Jesus, turn these stones into bread. And we're tempted to deride the care of God. Cast yourself down. Let the angels save you. And we're tempted to despise the glory of God. Fall down and worship me, Satan says to him. Jesus faced each one of these and succeeded in remaining faithful to God. And there are ways that we each face these as well. So let's see how he does this. Let's talk about the devilish temptation to defy the will of God. Again, in verses three and four, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, you have to understand, there is so much going on in these temptations. Honestly, I don't know where to begin this morning. I figured out where to begin, okay? But I wasn't really sure when I started. So there's probably different ways to unpack this, but let me just start this way. At the least, we need to start with the affirmation that what Jesus is being asked to do by Satan in this context is sin for him to do. We have to understand that. Because it is not the will of the Father. That's all it has to be for it to be sin, that it's not in God's will. 
Do you know that there might be something that is sin for you because you know you're going against the will of God that somebody else might be able to do? I'm not talking about a moral thing that's commanded in scripture, but in your context, in your time, something is unwise or sinful that somebody else may do? The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to fast. And it is not God's will for him yet to break this fast. So Satan cleverly, devilishly, starts by going hard after the biggest thing that is probably on Jesus' mind, earthly speaking. When am I going to get to eat? And Satan puts it this way. If you are the son of God, because from the very beginning, the first words of the serpent are a question about God's truth and about his will. If you're the son of God, turn the stones to bread. You don't have to suffer in this way. So Satan calls into question Jesus' sonship, and he tries to trick Jesus into ending his fast all in one temptation, which, by the way, temptation is a deception. I'm not going to talk about that today, but we, we can learn about what temptation looks like by studying this text. Jesus is going to affirm that he is the Son of God, however, not by turning stones into bread, but by not turning stones into bread, even though he could because he's going to continue to obey the will of God. Now, as most of you are aware who have studied this temptation, every time Jesus is faced with one of these devilish temptations, what does he do? He quotes scripture. And some of you are about to hear me say, you think, that this is what we need to do when we're tempted. We need to quote scripture because that fact has led a lot of people to make this observation. When, the, when, when, Satan, when Satan tempts us, we need to, we need to quote scripture at, it, at, at him. But I'm telling you, that doesn't appear to work here, actually. Because you notice Satan doesn't run away when he hears Jesus quoting scripture. In fact, in the second temptation, he just quotes it right back at him. Satan isn't scared of this. We, we think of scriptures as talisman. If we just, we're just quoting it into the air, our temptation will leave. You can quote scripture all day long at the devil if you want to, but he's just going to laugh at you unless you do one thing, unless you obey the scripture you're quoting. Do you realize that you can be on your way to sinning against God while quoting the scripture all the way? It's not your knowing God in his word that drives your obedience. It's your loving God in his word that drives your obedience. We are to be doers of the word and not hearers only after all. So Jesus is not quoting scripture to make the devil flee. What Jesus is doing is affirming his commitment to God's will. He is saying, this is what the word of God says. And so that is what I am doing. I am following the word. By quoting scripture, Jesus is giving a biblical reason why he knows this is what he is doing and he's not gonna do what Satan says. So we need to know the word. We need to know what God wants, that's for sure. But merely quoting it doesn't do anything. We have to be committed to it. And that's what Jesus is modeling for us here. Every time Jesus quotes the scripture to Satan, by the way, he is quoting, do you know this already? He is quoting from the same range of scripture, Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8. Those, he's selecting very carefully what scripture he's using. He could have picked a lot of scriptures to say no to Satan. He picks these. Why? What's happening in Deuteronomy that makes Jesus think of these scriptures? Well, in Deuteronomy, the people are about to enter the promised land. The very people who had been tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, it's actually the children of those parents who have all died in the wilderness because of their sin. 
They're about ready to enter the promised land. And before they go in to possess the land, Moses is speaking with them. And he's reminding them all that God taught them while they were in the wilderness and how much they had learned and often had learned through their failure. But here is Jesus in the wilderness doing for his people what they could never, never have done on their own. He is saying no to sin and yes to God's will. So Jesus here quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And Matthew actually is using the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translated about 200 years before Christ. Uh, when, when, when Jesus quotes in, in Matthew 4, uh, in, in every instance, it's like almost a word for word. I mean, just like maybe a syllable difference between that text and this one that I'm showing you here, which is why I put the, I'm actually putting the Septuagint text that he's quoting from up here on the screen. And it says in, in, in uh, the, the quotation comes from Deuteronomy 8.3, but I, I want to give you the full context here. Notice what it says. You shall remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. This is like for 40 years this has happened. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. That's what God was doing for those 40 years. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor your fathers. In other words, it was like a surprise thing. Where did manna come from? Of course, that was what it means. It means, what is it? They, did, they had no idea. They had nothing to, nothing to base this on. That he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God shall man live. Jesus is quoting this part of this text in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want, you to make, I want us to make two observations here at the beginning about these verses. The bread referred to is the manna that God gave to his people in the wilderness. He made them hungry. Jesus has been starving. He made them hungry and then fed them with this manna. This is the bread that's being referred to. Second, God brought them to a place where there was little to eat, where he could feed them with this miracle. It was on the ground for them for 40 years. It wasn't just a one-time thing. There are several points of places in the Old Testament in this story where, where God, the writer reminds us that this manna was, was going on for like about 40 years. He did this to test whether or not they would obey him, whether or not they would keep his commandments. But what does manna have to do with keeping God's commandments? Well, we have to go back to Exodus chapter 16 because we find, and I, I, we don't have time to read the whole text, although I would encourage you to do it. It is fascinating to think about all this. Manna comes with a set of commandments. There's instructions for manna. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat, or he can eat. You shall each uh, take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They, they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, like they were told to do, when they obeyed what they were told to do, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. You see that? God commanded, gather it this way. And when they followed God's command, they were blessed and everybody was fed. 
But here's the trouble with manna. If you keep it overnight, it, it, would bre- it would breed worms. It would putrefy. It would make the tent smell real bad, okay? And so Moses told them, don't leave it till the morning. Uh, they had to gather what they needed for each day and leave the rest. But the people were like, no way, we're gonna hoard it because we wanna make sure we have enough for our, our little ones to eat. And, and you know, we're, we're hungry besides that. And it says in verse 20, they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. But on Friday mornings, the the day before Sabbath, God gave them a different set of instructions. In verse 23, Moses said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. This this is the, the mouth of the Lord speaking, see? The words of the mouth of God. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath of the Lord. All that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Imagine that. God said to do something, and you did it, and and things worked out. So Moses warned them in verse 26, it's not coming on the Sabbath. You have to get twice as much on Friday. Keep it overnight. But sure enough, some of the people wouldn't listen to that. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. You see what's going on here? God is trying to bless them with food and he's trying to bless them with rest. God is a good God who gives good gifts. But it's never about the gift. It's never about the provision. God wants us to love and obey obey him so that we can be near him and know his blessing and his rest. So with his gifts, he always gives commands. We shouldn't be surprised. I mean, It was that way from the very beginning in the garden, right? All the trees of the garden you may freely eat, except for one tree. And as soon as God says, except for that tree, it's the one tree that we cannot stop thinking about. But you see, we are not created to live by bread alone, to enjoy God's gifts alone. We are created to obey God, that we might know the greatest joy of knowing him and loving him. Some of the people sinned because they were greedy and gluttonous and they could not trust that God was gonna supply the manna they needed every day, so they tried to hoard it and it made their lives miserable. You know, I can, I can hear the wife getting out of the husband, you know, I told you, you shouldn't have gone out there and, and, and gotten that extra and, 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 and she's trying to get the, the smell out of the tent and she's flapping, you know, the tent and trying to get, I, I can see the whole thing. Others sinned because they were lazy. And they didn't believe that the manna was not coming like it was every other day. So they didn't go out and gather twice as much on the day before the Sabbath. And for them, the Sabbath then was not a day of joy and rest. It was a day of hunger, a day of listening to their children cry because they had nothing to eat. So Satan says to Jesus, you're the son of God. At least that's what I've been told. You of all people shouldn't be starving. You should be feasting. That is, if you really are who you say you are, just turn these stones to food. Make some more manna. Jesus says, not on your life. 
We've been here before. We've been tempted to mistrust God before. I believe Satan was at the original temptation in the wilderness with all of God's people. Jesus says, not anymore, ever, because it's not about the bread. It's about obeying every word of God. Every one of us this morning is blessed by God with a certain number of resources. I know sometimes we think, oh, we really don't have a lot. Well, we really, really do. Those of you who have traveled to other countries know we have a whole lot to be thankful for. We have money, we have things, we have talents, we have relationships, friends, spouses, children, jobs, opportunities, ministries. And God has a will that he has revealed in his word regarding each of these gifts. You may believe that God isn't being good to you though because you're comparing your situation with somebody else's situation. So you're gonna be tempted to complain or better your situation by going after more of God's gifts without considering his word. You're going to find a way to make that money even if you have to enter a work environment that you know is out of God's will for your life. You're gonna get that relationship even if you have to compromise your standards of purity. You're gonna take that better opportunity even if you have to destroy a relationship with somebody else to do it. You're gonna get out of that situation even if you have to tell a little bit of an untruth to do it. You're gonna get one of those things even if you have to do something a little unethical. But do you realize that your life is not about those things? It's not about those opportunities. It's, it's not about bread. It's about following and knowing God and knowing his rest. So you need to ask yourself a question. Is there any gift that God has limited in your life so severely that you can no longer trust him and obey him? Is God so stingy that he has literally stopped us from following him? Like we don't have a choice. I have to disobey God because I've got to get out of this situation that God's put me in. Do we really think that? This is not the way God is dealing with us. His grace is sufficient for us to trust him and obey him with any level of resources, any kind of opportunity. Jesus himself knows this. He was being tempted simply to make a little bread after the father had not supplied him with food for 40 days. Are the parents that God gave you so strict with you that you no longer have any ability to love God and to follow him? Is the husband or wife that God has given you so awful that you have to say no to God and disobey his will? Has God been so unfair with the opportunities he has given you that he, he is literally holding you back from responding to him in faith? It's not about the bread. We can live for God and love him and trust him and obey him no matter how we perceive our circumstances. You will be tempted to go beyond God's goodness or go around it or make something better for yourself in a way that disobeys God's word. But as you know that, you also need to take heart because Jesus has already faced this for every one of us. He already withstood this temptation. 
He has already given you his power through the spirit to join him in saying no to the devil or no to our own hearts. To say, I don't live by bread alone. I live by the word of God. Jesus went to the cross for you and rose from the dead for you to take away your sins and to give you his righteousness. It was the righteousness he earned for you in the waters of the Jordan and the righteousness he earned for you in the temptation in the wilderness. So if you're a believer in Christ, you can say yes to the word of God and live by the will of God. You can because Jesus already did Not only can we live a life of confession and repentance to stay in a right relationship with the God who loves us like we saw last week in in Matthew 3, but we can also say no to the temptation that leads us to sin in the first place. Jesus the King has already given us everything we need to know him and obey him and to know his rich blessing as we wait for him to return. Father, we are grateful.